Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we're releasing a special episode from a project that I undertook in 2022 called the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. It was my intention to take all of the best clips from our show about one particular topic and put them all together as a masterclass to be released behind a paywall with a subscription-based service on Patreon. Well, we didn't have many subscribers, so I'm breaking up these episodes and releasing them here for free so that they can make an impact and hopefully help some people out there. Today's episode was taken from the first series, all about the three macronutrients. This is part one from the second episode, all about carbohydrates. We always appreciate any feedback that you might have, so feel free to leave us a comment on YouTube or on our website at myboundlessbody.com, where you can always book a complimentary 30-minute session with us at any time. Cheers, and enjoy part one of this two-part conversation, all about carbohydrates. Hello, hello. This is Casey Ruff, and welcome to our second episode of the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. In our first episode, we talked about one of the macronutrients, protein, and so we are going to stay with that theme for our first three episodes, and this second episode of the Boundless Body Premium Podcast is going to be all about carbohydrates. Now, as you have gathered at this point, we definitely promote a low-carbohydrate diet for ourselves and our clients, and so this is something that we have covered at length on many, many different episodes of the podcast. The most challenging part about putting this episode together for the premium edition was really trying to decide which clips were going to be the most relevant. And I think we've done a really good job here putting together some of of the really informative clips from world experts. And I think we've really covered this topic at length in this episode, which you are going to hear. We are going to be starting this episode with exclusive content. So this is content that is not found on Boundless Body Radio. This is a recent interview that I did with Amy Berger. And And she is going to be talking to us about carbohydrates. Now, Amy is a wonderful expert in the field of low-carbohydrate nutrition. She is the author of the book, The Alzheimer's Antidote. She has also written The Stall Slayer. And she also wrote End Your Carb Confusion, which she wrote with another one of our former guests, Dr. Eric Westman, who we will be hearing later in this episode as well. So that's where we're going to start. We're going to be asking Amy all about carbohydrates. So sit back and enjoy this episode. Well, in the context of food, carbohydrates are molecules that are found in a variety of different kinds of food, and they generally provide structure, like in a a plant, it might be some of the fibers that actually make up the physical structure and shape of the plant. Um, Some of it is energy storage, like in in a fruit, the that's basically the energy storage in a underground tube or root. It's the energy storage. That's sort of the very high level of carbs. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So with those components of carbohydrates, we know there's kind of like different types. So can you talk to us about like the different types we know, like sugar and starch and, you know, a lot of people don't even really consider like fiber being a carbohydrate. Can you tell us like the difference between the different types of carbohydrates? Yeah, there's, there's so many different kinds. Um, some people like to sort of very oversimplify, in my opinion, into simple carbohydrates and complex carbohydrates, simple being, you know, sort of smaller molecules or one or two kinds of carbohydrate put together. So like glucose, uh, sorry, sucrose, for example, what we think of as table sugar, like white sugar in a five pound bag, that is two kinds of uh, sugars put together. It's glucose and fructose. There is, um, 
lactose, which is the sugar found in milk, that's glucose and galactose. Those are all different forms of simple sugar, uh, simple carbohydrate. More complex carbohydrates are things like starch or various fibers. And starch is really just lots and lots and lots of glucose molecules strung together. And it, it has a very particular shape. And um, there's different there's different kinds of starch. There's amylose, there's amylopectin, and these, it's just the, the molecular structure, the shape of the molecule is different. And that affects the way we digest them. It affects kind of the impact on blood sugar. There are, like you said, fiber, and there's a lot of different kinds of fiber. Um, just a lot, so many, so many different kinds that all have slightly different effects. They provide slightly different um properties to these different foods that we would eat. Or for example, like things in beans. The reason beans are so problematic for some people and they cause, you know, gas and bloating and flatulence is because of the the particular kinds of carbohydrates they contain. We really appreciate that exclusive content from Amy Berger. She has been around the low carbohydrate space for a very long time, very well respected. And we were so grateful that we could snag her to talk about carbohydrates. We are going to jump right in to the clips from the show. So this is from episode 30, the episode that we did with Dr. Ben Bickman. Ben Bickman is one of the world renowned leaders in insulin research. I have so much respect for this guy. He's down at BYU doing such wonderful work. He shares his messages on social media. He's the author of the book, Why We Get Sick, which is absolutely fantastic. And we are going to start off by talking about how carbohydrates and the hormone insulin relate to each other. Um, we'll be talking about insulin and insulin resistance quite a bit during this premium episode. Um, there's definitely going to be some crossover with what Ben is saying here and with what some of our other guests are going to be talking about later on. But I I do think it's really important to hammer this point home. We still get lots of questions about insulin and carbohydrates and how these things are related. And I think there's a lot of confusion around that. And so Ben is going to start us off with some really wonderful explanations here. So I hope you enjoy. We're going to start the show with a listener question, which is kind of a question, mm -hmm. kind of a statement. Right. I asked somebody close to me, if they had a question for you as an insulin researcher, and they said, no, I don't have a question because I don't really, I've like, I've heard of insulin. Um, they uh -huh. said, I've always been confused about insulin. I know diabetics take it, but it's like sugar. Yep. So why are they taking it? It just never really made any sense to me. And I said, that is a great listener question and a great place to start. Yeah. I think most people are very confused about it. So can you tell us a little bit about yeah. what is the role of insulin? Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. In, in fact, what, that is a great way to start because uh, I will, you know, someone would look at me or look at even the, the premise of my book, uh, as you as you uh, very accurately described it, it, it's generally a book about insulin resistance, but I didn't put that in the title, because I knew the moment someone saw it, they would think, well, that's just relevant to diabetics. So I don't care about that, because I'm not a diabetic, you know, they, that, they may think that. And, and, and that is unfortunate. So insulin is a hormone that is flowing through our blood at all moments, um, every day, every moment of our lives unless we are a type one diabetic, only a type one diabetic, we cannot lump type two diabetes into this. Um, same definition, a type one diabetic is a disease of not making insulin. And so these are people who must replace what they don't have. And so they take insulin injections for the rest of their lives and live perfectly happy, healthy lives. Um, although the same rules apply to them as anyone else, they want to try to live a life or in other words, eat a diet 
that allows them to take as less insulin as possible. And that's certainly one of my central um, premises or what people I, I hope would take away from any conversation they hear me in, which is the best way to age well is to keep insulin low. The same thing goes with a type one diabetic. It just can't go too low. It needs to be there. Insulin is a hormone required for life. Um, the theme of insulin is to tell cells what to do with energy. That, that's a general theme or to, to tell cells what to do with nutrients, amino acids, uh, uh, glucose, or, um, or fats. And that part of that then, that definition, my defining it that way, encompasses the most commonly consumed um, uh, view of insulin, which is that it has nothing to do, it has nothing to do with anything else except glucose. That is unfortunate. It's it's not uh, it's not it's simply not accurate and doesn't encompass the magnitude the breadth of what insulin does. But it is true that insulin controls glucose. When someone eats a, eats a starchy, sugary meal, that will um, uh, load the the blood with glucose, where glucose will start to spike. That is a dangerous situation. And I do mean it is uh, frankly lethal. If glucose stays too high for too long, the person will start to leak this glucose into the kidneys and that will pull all of the body water with it from the blood. And the person can die from running out of blood, basically this hypovolemia. So if, if we keep the glucose too high for too long after indulging in these bagels or donuts, um, then we would die. So thankfully insulin comes in and it starts pushing that glucose out of the blood into tissues, most especially the muscle. The muscle will consume almost all of that glucose following that meal. It's, uh, it's around 80% of all the glucose will go into the muscle. And insulin is responsible for much of that push of, of, uh, of glucose, that movement of glucose. So that's the relevance of insulin with glucose. It is certainly relevant. There's no doubt about it. But it just fails to encompass what insulin does, say, at maintaining neuron structure in the brain or um, maintaining uh, joint formation, uh, you know, chondrocyte uh, lifespan at, at joints or um, maintaining the uh, protein in muscles. Once muscles have made protein, insulin helps defend that muscle protein from getting broken down. So uh, none of those have anything to do with glucose, but they have more to do with insulin simply telling cells take in nutrients and store them. You know, I, whether it stores them as energetic molecules like uh, glycogen or triglycerides, or whether it's telling the cell to store nutrients as um, uh, future hormones to make hormones from other molecules or to make structural molecules. In other words, telling a cell to take in amino acids and make structural support proteins or, or to make uh, structural or support lipids, you know, fats uh, to help uh, provide structure to the cell or the mitochondria and, and other organelles within the cell. Uh, but again, my long-winded answer to the question is insulin is relevant to um, every cell and it tells every cell what to do with energy. And I do mean every cell, literally every cell in the body. And, and I don't mean that, I'm not using that term as the kids do it these days. I do mean literally Every cell in the body has insulin receptors, which means insulin has an effect on every single cell in the body. Mm. So it's an important hormone. Interesting. And when someone, it, when someone is getting into insulin resistance, now that we've defined the hormone, insulin resistance, as, as it occurs, as we discuss it in a human body, insulin resistance is actually two things. 
The first is that some cells aren't responding to insulin as well as they were before. For example, the muscle cells, they aren't responding to insulin as well as they were before. And now the muscle cells aren't taking in as much glucose. And so glucose is getting stuck in the blood. And so glucose levels would start to climb over the years. Uh, but at the same time, the other half of the coin known as insulin resistance is that blood insulin levels are elevated, a condition that we call hyperinsulinemia. So in order to understand the relevance of insulin resistance in chronic diseases, such as Alzheimer's, breast or prostate cancer, or erectile dysfunction, or PCOS, whatever it is, to understand insulin resistance role in those disorders, you must understand that it is those two things, the confluence of compromised insulin action at certain cells and hyperinsulinemia. Those two are the pillars of insulin resistance. Interesting. So that's a perfect segue. I have a little list here that I put together, and I do mean this is a little list. I could have gone on and on and on and on, but I'm just going to read these things, and I want to know what is happening in your brain as you hear these things. Type mm -hmm. 2 diabetes, obesity, hypertension, PCOS, erectile dysfunction, acid, acid reflux, osteoarthritis, dementia. That's a small list of a lot of different conditions and diseases. What goes through your brain when I read those to you? Yeah, yeah. Frankly, it is It is admittedly the premise of the book. Uh, and that is that each of those, as distinct as they may be, they do have at least some common core, um, which is insulin resistance. To varying degrees, insulin will play either a causal or exacerbating role in those diseases. So insulin's either, insulin resistance is either outright causing the problem, like it is with um, type 2 diabetes or polycystic ovarian syndrome or erectile dysfunction, or it's contributing to it, like say it is for certain cancers or, or dementia, uh, Alzheimer's disease. So each, and, and that to me, um, so I would want anyone to know who's listening, they may think, boy, Bickman, you're really going off the rails here. That's a little too bold. It, it, it would be bold if it weren't for the evidence that supports that conclusion. So I'd want anyone to know that I am wholly justified in saying that, as bold as it may be, simply because there is significant evidence to support it. And the reason, uh, it, it should be, to me, wonderful news. It's the good news. It's the gospel of human health. Because if you can acknowledge that many of these seemingly distinct problems do at least have one common thread or underlying it, one common core, a common root, then you address the root. If you're worried about the branches of a sick tree, don't prune the individual branches, just cut down the damn tree. And so we have with insulin resistance, if you could imagine a guy who's opening up his medicine cabinet, he's taking one medication for his um, his type 2 diabetes. He's taking a medication for his hypertension, a medication for his erectile dysfunction. How liberating would it be for him to realize, wait, all of these are actually related and to varying degrees derivative of insulin resistance. Well, then he asks himself the question, how do I then just address my insulin resistance? And then the next, well, the answer to that question is change your diet. That I mean, not that I don't want to get ahead of ourselves in the conversation, but back to my point, if we can acknowledge that insulin resistance is relevant to virtually every chronic disease, it gives us a way and, and, and is causal, then we can address the actual root problem rather than just taking medications that are simply that are going to address symptoms of the insulin resistance. Mm, interesting. So that was something that really surprised me when I was first getting into this, like I've worked with type two diabetics and we have definitely gotten them off of insulin, which is, which is great. But then to see, mm -hmm. Oh, your blood pressure also went down. Your, your 
mental clarity mm-hmm. is way up. There, there's other things that that clear themselves up when you address. You're right, like that root cause, the branch, the not the branches, the trunk. Yep. Yeah, that's so yep, awesome. That's right. Yeah, that, that. In fact, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled when I see like what you're doing when you're putting into practice something that that I as a scientist have have concluded is relevant. That is gratifying. Indeed, it's one of my hopes. As a scientist, there's nothing more frustrating than thinking you have the answer to relevant questions, but not having a way to share that answer with other people. In fact, that was when, you know, about three or four years ago, when I got involved in social media, it was in no way to be self-aggrandizing. That's why I don't post pictures of myself doing workouts or even pictures of myself eating. I didn't ever want it to be about me. And because I hate that kind of attention, um, I, I wanted simply to have a platform for sharing answers to questions that I knew people had that, that I couldn't as a scientist. And so, uh, again, my point where you have a practitioner, someone who's on the front lines or where the rubber meets the road, like what you're doing, where you can take some of the insight that a scientist has found and, and put it into practice, that is wonderful because I, I'm, I don't do that. I, I am simply the guy who's putting some fuel in the engine but there still has to be that point of, well, the vehicle's not going to move if, there aren't, if the wheels aren't on the ground. We need that, and, and you're playing that part, and I'm glad for that. Well, we're grateful to be getting the information from people like you who are just looking for answers. I mean, we don't we yeah. don't care what people eat. I'm not paid whether you eat a steak or whether you eat cereal. I don't care. Yeah. But I do care if you lose fat the way you want to or, or reverse some of these chronic conditions. So we just have to find, yep. you know, what works best. As far as insulin resistance goes, here's an analogy I like to use, and you can tell me if this, this works or not. Let's say I, I drink a beer and I get a buzz. And then a month mm-hmm. later, I don't get a buzz anymore. So now I need to drink two or three beers. And then a month later, I yep. need to drink more and more and more. And one day I come to you, Ben, and I say, dude, I am drinking like 12 beers a night. I'm not getting a buzz anymore. What should I do? And you say, oh, well, here's a bottle of Jack Daniels. You should drink this and you'll get a buzz. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Is yep. that a fair analogy, especially related to type 2 diabetes? That's a perfect analogy. Yeah. So, so uh, it, it's insulin. Res- one of the key causes of insulin resistance is chronically elevated insulin. And, and you're, you're describing it in a perfect analogy. And the, the fundamental truth underlying both of these instances, whether it's chronic alcohol exposure leading to alcoholism, or whether it's chronic insulin exposure leading to insulin resistance, the theme of it is when cells are exposed to an incessant stimulus they will start to reduce their sensitivity to that stimulus. So in other words, if there's too much of something, then the body will start to reduce its sensitivity to that something. And we see this in all ways in life, whether it's, you know, someone's been listening to music too loud and they get, they become deaf. Now, all of a sudden, ironically, they can't hear the music as well. If they've been exposing themselves to some illicit substances like say alcohol or caffeine or other, you know, harder drugs, they need more and more of that substance to get the response that, they, that they're seeking. The same thing goes with hormones. And, and insulin is a prime example. Chronically elevated insulin will be contributing to insulin resistance. Now, I'm not going to be so bold to say it's the only factor. Indeed, I, I don't. I believe there are other relevant factors. But I feel strongly that insulin is a, a primary part of what's driving insulin resistance. Namely, someone is eating a diet that is, well, basically it's high in refined starches and sugars and they're eating every two hours because they've been told to eat six meals a day. And that is a wonderful way to keep insulin elevated 
every, literally every waking moment of the day and even well into the night, that will drive insulin resistance. Mm, interesting. So if we go back to the alcoholic analogy, what would be a wiser thing to tell that person? So the wiser analogy, rather than saying, well, let's just give you something harder, it would be take a break. Um, take a break from it. And of course, easier said than done in the case of the alcoholic. And maybe easier, easier said than done in the case of the carbohydrate-addicted type 2 diabetic. Um, uh, it, evidence is growing, uh, incidentally, that there is, in fact, a, an addiction to carbohydrates, including publication just very recently finding that people are not addicted to fat in any way. Uh, it's, it's the carbohydrate that they're addicted to. And we see this in practice. No one is sitting around on a Saturday night or a Friday night about to watch an episode of The Mandalorian, and they say, oh, man, I sure would love a plate of scrambled eggs. No, no, they want something salty and crunchy like chips or crackers or something or, or sweet and gooey um, like ice cream. That is going to be carbohydrate. Sure, it might have fat in it too, no doubt. And fat and carbohydrate together is, is a wonderful, magical, toxic mix. But regardless, the solution in the case of insulin resistance is turn it down. Turn down the, the volume here. Let Give the body a break. Give the cells a break from the incessant insulin. And all of a sudden, they will become more insulin sensitive. Mm. Are carbohydrates the only thing that increase uh, insulin production? Yes. In general, yes. Uh, so if we look across the three macronutrients, carbohydrate, protein, and fat, um, carbohydrates are without a doubt the greatest um, stimulus of insulin. But of course, that, that it encompasses a tremendous range. Uh, and, and, and I would want anyone to know that when I'm speaking about the benefits of a low-carb diet, uh, I am in no way attempting to uh, equalize broccoli with uh, a donut. Uh, so there, there's a, an enormous um, spectrum of what a carbohydrate will do to insulin. In general, grains and, and sugars, of course, will have a significant effect, and vegetables and certain fruits will have a modest effect. That's the general theme at the risk of you know needing to get into more detail. Protein will have a modest effect. When protein is consumed on its own, like pure whey, it can have a less, a more than modest effect where it can be pretty, um, uh, quite consequential likely. And I think what's relevant there, and it, maybe I'll finish this and just say fat has no effect. There are some people who say, well, fat does. And there is a limited evidence to show that. Uh, and, and the evidence, the studies that show that there is a statistical increase in insulin with fat, it's when the person has consumed about five to 600 calories of fat. And then the little insulin curve at about two hours is statistically significant, but it's, I would argue it's meaningless where it goes from like five microunits per mil up to eight microunits per mil. And, and so that the, the statistician says, oh, well that reached a significant level. And I, as a physiologist would say, yeah, but that's not meaningful. But nevertheless, I'm going to be bold to say there's essentially no effect to insulin on fat or response to fat. Uh, and then protein, there can be. But if you eat that protein with fat, the insulin effect is significantly um, reduced. Uh, uh, and, and I think that's relevant because in nature, God designed... Uh, and, and indeed, I'm a very religious person, so I am going to be bold to say it that way. But if that offended someone, they would just say nature. Um, but I will, I'm not pagan, so I'm not going to say mother nature. I will say God designed um, proteins to come with fat. And in nature, they do. All of the best proteins, or, or literally every protein, literally every protein comes with fat. 
And the best proteins for humans are undoubtedly the animal-based proteins. Uh, and I, I do mean that very objectively, quantifiably. Animal proteins beat any plant protein um, in, in the world. And, and that is eggs, meat, and dairy. They are the best protein sources for humans. This has been quantified. There's no, there should be no debate on that. Those all come with fat. And so my sentiment with regards to protein is eat it with fat. Next, we are going to go to a bit of a longer clip with Dr. Andrew Oswari, who found a low-carbohydrate diet later on in his career and now practices low-carbohydrate medicine in practice. We are going to start off by asking a very similar question that we asked Ben, which is related to insulin and related to type 1 and type 2 diabetes. And so he's going to start off by really explaining this point. I think it's awesome, again, to hear this from so many different angles. And Dr. Oswari does such a great job explaining this. I thought this was a great clip. I thought it was really easy to follow along and understand the science. And it's really important to remember that the question is about type 2 diabetes, type 1 diabetes, but remember what Dr. Bickman said about all the different conditions that really associate with insulin resistance. It's not just obesity. It's not just diabetes. There are so many other conditions that this will relate to. And so keep that in mind as you're listening to this clip. I really want to take a deep dive with you on diabetes. It's something we end up talking a lot about on the show, but I don't think we've really explored what it is. I'm always surprised that people have so many questions about it. So can you tell us a little bit about what the disease is like, um, the difference maybe between like type one, type two, and how long it takes to develop and what things cause it? So type one is typically in the younger folks. And they present with the usual symptoms that we're taught with diabetes. They're thin, they're thirsty, they go to the bathroom all the time. And it's theorized that it's an autoimmune condition where their body attacks the beta cells in the pancreas and they can't make the insulin. So their treatment is to literally take insulin, whether it's through injections or a pump, or um, but it is they do require insulin. Type two diabetes is when the person can still make insulin but the traditional thought is that there isn't enough insulin or the receptors that are in the body do not react to the insulin available. And so it's hard for the body to take the glucose out of the bloodstream. Now, I learned a lot more on type two diabetes after I went into the low carb space. There, there's Dr. Jason Fung, Joseph Kraft, Robert Unger, and it's changed the way I see diabetes. So, just for an example, our bloodstream can hold about five grams of glucose. That's about a teaspoon and a quarter of glucose. And it's a very fine line. Tiny amount. Yep. Our liver is the first storage closet. I'm going to call it a storage closet that gets filled. So when the body has glucose in the bloodstream and it's getting to the point where it's too much, the body will stimulate insulin. And insulin takes that glucose, puts it in the first storage closet, which is typically the liver. And the liver can hold roughly about 70 to 100 grams of glucose. Our muscles are also storage closets for, for glucose, but we do have to empty them. And uh, it can be emptied with weight training and HIIT training. Um, and if those are full, there's still glucose available. The body needs to figure out what to do with it. And then insulin starts to turn the glucose into triglycerides. And that gets deposited in our bodies as fat. So when the liver is full, the muscles are full, the fat cells are full, that's when glucose starts to spill out into our blood 
And that's when we get the diagnosis of diabetes, type two diabetes. Mm, interesting. So type one, there's, there's no counter kind of hormone to the glucagon. And so glucagon is running amok. It's, you know, using way too much energy and people are, are going thin. And so if they don't have insulin, they will die. And so inventing insulin was super important, but what you're describing on type two is it's, it's like, there's no more storage space and there's more things to store. Is that a, an interesting way to look at it? Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, it's, it's an easier way to, to think about it. And, 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 uh, as Dr. Fung his his book diabetes code says like like your your body is full is like a suitcase and it's full of clothes and and when you're trying to stuff more glucose in there you have to get more insulin to to do it so you need your 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 wife to to hold down the suitcase while you're shoving something inside and and you just need more people to do that well it's the same with the body when your storage places are full you need more insulin and so not only do you have hyperglycemia, which is high glucose, you also have hyperinsulinemia, which is also a driver of disease. Mm. I'm glad you brought that up. I was just going to ask you, what are some other things that associate with type 2 diabetes? Like when, when that is starting to come about, what other things do you typically see? Cardiovascular is probably one of the, if not the highest. Um, so we're talking about things like stroke and, and heart disease and, and, uh, heart attacks, we're talking about end organ damage, like the kidney, kidney failure, um, the eyes with, with, with um, retinopathy and blindness, hypertension. Um, those are some of the drivers. And, and now even more, more recently, obviously, is the, the COVID-19, where, where um, those that are obese and diabetic with hypertension, cardiovascular disease, they have much, much, much worse outcomes. Mm. Interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm glad you brought up the suitcase um, analogy. I think that's a really good one. And I would think like, okay, well, if I've got the suitcase that's getting full, maybe I should stop putting clothes in, <laughs> like take a shorter yeah. trip, like don't need as many clothes, don't put as many clothes in the suitcase. So why don't, why don't we take that same approach in medicine typically? Right. Um, you know, I want to, I'm going to plug Dr. David Unwin. He's from the UK and he's doing just amazing work as far as writing up papers and explaining things. He has a great, um, if you've ever looked at infographics, just, just Google Dr. Unwin infographics. And it'll come up with these great graphs and how many teaspoons of sugar on each thing. And so I'm just going to do an example of a breakfast. Like, let's say a third cup of cornflakes has about 8.4 teaspoons of sugar, which is 33.6 grams. Then you have a banana which is 24 grams, apple juice was 36 grams, a slice of toast was 22 and a half grams. So now right there, just for that breakfast, we're talking about 116 grams of sugar. <laughs> or if you divide that by four, it's about 29 teaspoons of sugar. Wow. Now you have to find a place for that in your body just from breakfast alone. And of course, two hours later, we're going to be hungry. So we we either have our crackers, fruits, nuts, or a granola bar or a protein bar. And then, you know, our liver and, and body just fills up with sugar very quickly. Wow. What, what you just described wasn't even like a piece of cake and a soda. That was a 1990s part of this complete breakfast. Like that's, that was considered healthy food 20, 30 years ago. Exactly. <laughs> Still is too. I mean, bowl of oatmeal with, a, with, with blueberries and bananas and, you know, maple syrup, it's still, it's 
still quite quite common. That's crazy. That's so crazy. So you described the person getting hungry again and needing a snack. So tell us tell us how that relates to insulin and what that's all about as well, because I think that's super important. Yeah. So our insulin, our bodies take about four hours after a meal for our insulin to go back down to, I'm not going to say zero, but but to a normal level. And so when we continue to feed the body every couple hours, um, there was one book that said uh, there were some people who were eating 10 times a day. Our insulin level never shuts off. And so when insulin is available, it is building. It's called anabolic because it builds things. It, it builds muscle. It builds fat. Uh, and so insulin does take the sugar out of the blood cell, but it also blocks your body from burning its own fat. And so we're, we're stuck in this conundrum that you're just continuing to build with, with no relaxation to break down and, and burn off the fat. So is that what causes people to be overweight and hungry at the same time, which is like the weirdest kind of problem to have if you really think about it, but it makes so much sense in that model. Is that kind of what you see? Yeah. Um, carbohydrates in general get, uh, tends to promote, uh, hyperphagia or eating more. Um, and you know, I've, I've, I've found that in myself, you know, if I have, chips or a cracker, I'm going to need something in a few hours. If I have a piece of cake, I'm going to be hungry much sooner. And that's probably one of the biggest side effects of being low carb for me is that I don't think about food like I used to. And I remember going to a um, anywhere and just thinking, what am I going to have for lunch? What am I going to have for dinner? And now I don't even think about it. Mm, I love that. That's one of my favorite parts about eating this way as well. It's just not it's not that you can't, it's just, you don't, you don't really care. It's not on your mind. Describe, you mentioned being hungry and I, I think that's really important. And I also think there's a very big difference between the type of hunger you feel. So eat the chips and you get hungry two hours later. What does that hunger feel like? Ah, oh, that's a good question. I had to learn that myself and I still have to, I still battle that, uh, having an overweight background, uh, hunger, what does hunger feel for me? I guess I'll feel it in my stomach. I'll feel more gurgling. I'll feel there's this emptiness taste in my mouth. It's not even the taste. It's just like feeling that uh, I need something. Whereas my other hunger was more like, hmm, am I bored? Do I need something? I, I really need something to satisfy something. And I don't even know what it is, but it could be salt. It could be water, but I just think thought of it as food. I needed food. Mm. Yeah. I just, when I get hungry now, like I'll feel the the empty stomach and I can definitely feel it in my mouth, but it's, it's not, it, it's not like wrecking my life. It's like feeling cold. You're just cold. It's, it's just hungry. Yeah. The, the brain fog, the, the like starving, starving feeling. Yeah. Like I hardly ever get that anymore. It's so nice. Um, yes. so crazy. So, okay. So Insulin is putting energy into cells, trapping the cells so that they can't release what they need. So how, how do we handle that in the standard medical system? Like what things do we do to help treat that? Well, so let's just take diabetes. Let's go back to diabetes. The, the treatment is the treatment goal is to get sugar out of the system, glucose out of the system. So the most common one now, probably first line is metformin. And metformin works by making the the, org the end 
cells like the liver and the muscles more um, sensitive to the insulin that's around. It'll use the insulin more efficiently and be able to take the sugar out. It also blocks glucagon or gluconeogenesis. So that the liver will not continue to make, make fuel uh, in, with glucose. So that's metformin. And then there's the other ones, like there's the um, GLP-1 inhibitors, there's the DPP-4, there's the SGLT-2. All those are to decrease glucose in the body. Mm. Whereas what we're trying to do is let's not put the glucose in the body. Let's let the body do what it's supposed to do. Yeah. I mean, going back again to the suitcase analogy, if you have a problem of too many shirts in the suitcase, then put less shirts in the suitcase, right? Yes. Yes. Yet yet what we end up doing also for a lot of people in, again, like standard care is giving them more insulin. Is that correct? Right. That's, or or stimulate the insulin to provide or, or do something. So yeah, I remember in the hospital and, and, you know, it took me, I mean, obviously it took me 18 years to, to figure this out because I'm kind of slow, but I remember in the hospital when I was in residency where you would, you would say, okay, if you're going to have this much glucose, you're going to have to take, or I mean, if you're going to have this many carbs, let's take this much insulin. So we put them on an insulin sliding scale. And, and now I'm looking back and I'm like, why did we even give them the carbohydrates in the first place? We should have just not lived with insulin, let the body take care of itself. Wow. Now we're talking a lot about carbohydrates and insulin. What about some of the other macronutrients? Do they have the same effect on insulin, the insulin that we have in our body, if we, you know, fat or protein? So I'm going to, again, this is just going to be a very general, very basic. Let's, let's, let's just say carbohydrates, um, turn spike your glucose and insulin. And we'll just, again, just to be on the easy side, we'll make it a 10. Protein may stimulate it to a level of five and fats may stimulate it to a level of zero to one. So again, that's very general terms, um, but certainly protein and fats will not stimulate glucose uh, and, and insulin release as much as carbohydrates will. Gotcha. Now you mentioned a blood marker A1C. Can you explain what that is and why that's important for um, understanding you know, blood sugar, uh, insulin, and type 2 diabetes? Sure. Hemoglobin A1C is actually an estimated average of your sugar level for the last three months. Uh, it's actually measuring what they call glycated red blood cells or the percentage of red blood cells that have sugar-coated hemoglobin. So it's not, it's not actually testing how much glucose is in the system. It's just an uh, estimated average of the sugar for the last three months. But that's important to know as well. Um, yeah, interesting. And a, one, a number over six and a half in most places is, is considered diabetic. Mm. Are there other ways, I mean, I know people stick their finger. Are there other ways you like people to measure blood sugar or is that your favorite marker to look at? It's definitely not my favorite measure because I've seen folks with low carb um, carnivore with higher A1Cs more than you would expect. And again, it's, it's because we're measuring the glycated red blood cells instead of the actual sugar. Uh, I love using the continuous glucose monitor. Uh, I think it's something, I'm going to call it a biohack. Uh, not all places uh, 
we'll cover it as far as insurance is. But if if you can get it for twenty or forty dollars, I think it's worth. It's called the Freestyle Libre. Is the one I prescribe, and it can, you you leave it on your arm for two weeks, and you take your phone or your reader, and you scan it after whatever you eat. And it's it's interesting to see the patterns of glucose. Does it spike up? Does it come right back down? Does it go up gradually? Does it stay up longer? Or and does then comes down? It also tells you like what foods make it go up. So I've seen a few times where where my patients have eaten oatmeal with some fruit and it, it goes really high. For me, it's rice. Rice really makes it go up. And so it's important for me and my patients to see it right off, right there to see which foods do what to your body because we're all different too. So you're able to see that in real time as it's happening. Yes. And it, re- it records it as a graph as well, which you will lose on finger sticks. So the finger sticks are good too, because if that's all you can do, then that's great too. Um, you would check your sugar before you eat and then about 60 minutes after you eat. Roughly, that's where the spike occurs. But I do remember like for myself, I remember when I was first doing this and I had movie popcorn, which is horrible, right? It has, it's not even real butter. It's a trans fat butter. And I, I like it flavored. So I, I, I had this popcorn and I'm scanning my sugar and... 30 minutes, 60 minutes, 90 minutes, I was like, hey, this is great because my sugar is fine on this popcorn. Uh, hour and 20 minutes, then I start seeing it start to rise. And I peaked at about three hours. And if wow. I would have used it, I would have lost it. I would never have seen that. I would have never guessed that. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. I've used this analogy on the show before. My... I, I got a new car a few months ago. My old car wouldn't tell me what my fuel economy was. And so when I went to the pump to fuel up, I would just kind of reverse engineer it and say, okay, I put in 12 gallons. I went this many miles. This was my average fuel economy. But that doesn't change my behaviors real time. My new fancy car, it, it shows me real time what my fuel economy is. And I find myself very easily like self-correcting things, easing off the gas a little bit to see if I can get that number to go higher. And wow. it's so so helpful to see it real time because I've learned like what behaviors I'm doing as I'm driving is actually truly changing the fuel economy as it's going. And I'll use that example to kind of explain to people what a CGM is and how useful it can be to see that data. Because oftentimes do you, do you notice that people are, are correcting on their own? Absolutely. Oh, I love that analogy. That's great. So we really appreciated that insight from Dr. Andrew Oswari. I think he did a great job explaining those mechanisms behind carbohydrates and all the different diseases that they can cause. We are next going to go to Gary Taubes. Gary Taubes is a best-selling author. He's a journalist, and he has been covering low-carbohydrate diets for many, many years, basically two entire decades, with what really started with an article called What If It's All But A Big Fat Lie that he published in 2002 in the New York Times. So many people in this space, the low carbohydrate space, can trace their lineage of information back to Gary Taubes. He does wonderful work. His latest book, The Case for Keto, is absolutely fantastic. And that's where we centered this discussion. We're actually going to be hearing from him three separate times in this interview. But the first one is going to be related to the calories in, calories out theory of weight loss. If you have ever tried to lose weight and you have sought information about what to do, surely you have heard the term uh, calories in, calories out, or the idea that you need to reduce 
reduce the number of calories that you're eating and you need to increase the number of calories that you're burning, which we argue pretty strongly that that, that model is absolutely wrong and very flawed. And Gary's going to make his case for that here. So from the 1930s onward, there's also a revolution, just as the obesity people start to think that obesity in everyone is caused by eating too much. Um, people studying fat metabolism and fat storage start on elucidating what regulates that. And they need a variety of new technologies and assays and ways to measure. So it take, develops over the course of 30 years. And by the mid-1960s, it's clear that the insulin, the hormone insulin, is a principal regulator of fat storage. So every hormone, to some extent, will affect fat storage, that balance of the 20 calories that we're talking about that you might store in excess all day. Because hormones are telling your body to do something, you know, uh, uh, flee, flee or fight, procreate, eat, sleep, you know get warmer for the cold weather, sweat. I mean, they do everything. They're the signaling molecules and are the primary signaling molecules in our body. And because they're telling your body to do something, they tend to, they tell your fat tissue to release fat into the bloodstream so that fuel will be available for this thing you're going to do. And actually this was, it's kind of cool in the fifties researchers when they finally could measure it's called fatty acids in the bloodstream. They realized that if they gave animals or humans adrenaline, their blood would fill up with fat because the adrenaline is telling them again to flee or fight. That's your, you know, your 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 primary response hormone there. And it's making the, the way they saw it is it's making the fuel available. So like if you see a lion and you get this burst of adrenaline, um, and you're going to run away from the lion, you'll have enough fuel available immediately to continue running long enough to survive, basically. So that was the idea. Um, the one hormone that works opposite to that was insulin. So insulin was a hormone that you secrete in response to mostly eating carbohydrates. Insulin is secreted in response to your blood sugar going up in your blood. And it turns out that there are a lot of different ways that insulin is the what the, the way it was phrased in this famous 1965 lecture was the principal regulator of fat metabolism. So basically, when insulin goes up, it's telling your lean tissue and organs to burn blood sugar. You secrete it in response to your blood sugar going up, and high blood sugar is toxic. So the insulin is telling your cells basically look burn this blood sugar just take it up burn it let's get rid of it we got to keep it under control blood sugar is rising we got to burn it and while we do that we don't want to be using anything else for fuel because our immediate concern is the raising blood sugar so let's keep the fat stored so the same hormone is telling your cells to burn carbs and not store not burn fat and it's telling your fat cells to store fat and the way it does it is it upregulates a particular enzyme called LPL that takes fat into the fat tissue and then it shuts off or inhibits an enzyme called hormone-sensitive lipase, HSL, that breaks the fat down normally and lets it escape into the bloodstream. So as long as insulin's elevated, you're storing fat, burning carbs, storing fat. Um, 
And all of this is happening while researchers are learning about this condition called insulin resistance, which also took until the 1960s to really measure and identify. So it turns out that if you've got type 2 diabetes or you're overweight or obese, if you've got type 2 diabetes, that's a disorder of insulin resistance. So your cells are not properly responding to the insulin that's being secreted. So as a result, you secrete more of it. And as your insulin is elevated, your fat cells are storing fat. This is all textbook medicine, which is kind of what was so stunning about my research is nobody ever denied any of this. <clears throat> it just wasn't considered relevant to weight loss or weight gain because we knew what could make people get fat. They ate too much. We knew what would make them lose weight. They had to eat less. So all this science of fat metabolism and the physiology of adipose tissue, fat tissue, and all this beautiful science was considered irrelevant. The way I phrased it recently in an article is as though researchers decided that the science of fat accumulation had nothing to do with the science of excess fat accumulation, because we know what causes the excess people eat too much. So <clears throat> what I do in my books, the case for keto is basically if you want to get the fat out of your fat tissue and burn it, you have to lower insulin levels. And I, for many people, they might have to minimize their insulin. And the way you do that is to avoid carbohydrates and replace those carbohydrate calories with fat because fat is the one macronutrient that doesn't stimulate insulin secretion, at least in the short run. So the case for keto is basically saying, look, there's a large subset of people that might be, you know, from the overweight to the obese, who if they want to achieve and maintain a healthy weight, and the maintenance is crucial, they don't do it by eating less or eating low-fat diets or purges or, you know, vegan diet, that you've got to target insulin and insulin's effect on fat tissue, and you end up this idea of, you know, the way to do that is to avoid carbohydrates. So you've got a theory that says, look, carbohydrates are literally fattening. Wish it wasn't true. And it's not true for the people who, you know, like the lean people, they can eat them. The rest of us can't. So we are going to skip ahead to a different part of the interview with Gary Taubes, where we talk about some of the other points that he makes in his fantastic book, The Case for Keto. If nothing else, this was a viable hypothesis that the principal regulator is insulin. If there's any insulin in the circulation at all, your fat cells are going to hold on to fat. Therefore, there should be a carbohydrate insulin model saying, look, we get fat because the carbohydrates in our diet. And all of this was had until the 1960s. The conventional wisdom was that carbohydrates were fattening. Every woman knew this. That was a line that I quote in every one of my books from the uh, 1963 British Journal of Nutrition article written by one of the top two dietitians in the UK. And the first sentence was, uh, carbohydrates are fattening. This is, no, every woman knows that carbohydrates are fattening, something like that. This is a piece of nutritional wisdom that no one would dispute. They go on to dispute it. But the fact that that was a conventional wisdom until then, and in the 1960s, they actually learned why this could be true. 
And then they never study it because they know why people get fat, they eat too much. Yeah, it's bonkers. Why they do, they couldn't even question it, explore it. it. It's just, it's absolutely crazy. It's so crazy. Yeah. You well, then there was another thing, getting back to Ansel Keys, just for a second. See, that we once we embraced the idea that dietary fat caused heart disease, then the idea is we have to eat low-fat diet, so we replace the fat with carbohydrates. So the carbohydrate, which until the 1960s had been considered uniquely fattening, after the 1960s was seen as heart-healthy diet foods. So now, if you examine this possibility that carbohydrates are fattening through their action on insulin, well, you can't do that because we're telling everyone to eat carbs because we think fat causes heart disease. So, and this is the problem with embracing these hypotheses before they're rigorously tested. And once you do, you lock yourself into a whole way of thinking about a whole host of things you never imagined. And the diabetes book is basically yet another way that all of this science, pseudoscience I'm discussing, perverted dietary therapy for what's now like one in seven adults. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, absolutely crazy. You mentioned earlier people being obese or overweight as, you know, we, we think of that as it's a willpower problem. It's a character problem, but you talk about something that I thought was absolutely fascinating that never really occurred to me. And, and it is the cephalic phase of insulin secretion. And, you know, I kind of understood that, but understanding the point that, you know, I can walk through a mall and smell Cinnabon and it might, it might not like really affect me where somebody who is overweight, it might affect them completely differently in a way that I could never really experience. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think that was fascinating. Okay. So this is, there is this concept called the cephalic phase of insulin secretion. You could think of it as uh, well, we the term we're used to think about is Pavlovian responses. So Pavlov's this you know Russian scientist in the early 20th century who demonstrates that he could train his dogs to associate the ringing of a bell, I think it was, to eating, and then he could ring the bell and the dog would start to salivate. So this is a Pavlovian response. The salivation was preparing the dog for eating which he now associated with a different phenomenon entirely. So it turns out our bodies do that in a host of different ways. Um, our bodies, you know, eating food is, they, they, we've just evolved a very sophisticated, complex, almost miraculous mechanisms to take in this food and process it in a way that maximizes health in the short term and prepares us for any exigencies in the long term. So, one of these is insulin secretion. You start thinking about food, you secrete insulin. Um, in response, it's actually, and then the way it was first described to me by a famous uh, uh, physiologist at the University of California, San Francisco, had done a lot of this work in the early 1960s, is you've got an engineering problem, which is that it takes insulin time to start working on the cells, but the blood sugar starts going up immediately. And once the insulin reaches peak value, it's going to continue working even after the blood sugar starts coming down. So your body, one way your body deals with that is by you start secreting insulin before you eat. So it's already working when the blood, the carbohydrates hit the bloodstream and your insulin starts going up and then you uh, kind of secrete it in pulses so that you never have this problem where you have too much insulin and the blood sugar is already coming down and now you're out of balance. Um, this cephalic phase 
is interesting because if you're insulin resistant, this condition we talked about where your cells don't respond properly to insulin, which is almost assuredly the case if you're overweight or you suffer from obesity or type 2 diabetes, it's certainly the case, um, then you're going to over-secrete insulin. And if you over-secrete insulin in the cephalic phase, which is thinking about food, stimulates insulin secretion, and now you over-secrete it, that insulin is going to make you hungry. Basically, it's, it tells your fat tissue to hold on to fat. It tells your lean tissue, your non-fat tissue, to take up blood sugar and burn it for fuel, but your blood sugar is not going up because you haven't eaten yet. So you start emptying the bloodstream of fuels and your cells start to sort of starve a little bit and your liver probably plays a particular role in here and all that's going to make you hungry. So now you imagine two people walking through shopping mall. This was the example I use in the book. One is lean and not insulin resistant. The other suffers from obesity and is insulin resistant. And they smell the Cinnabon. Cinnabon is a great example because I'm convinced they have fans that blow the smell of the freshly baked Cinnabon into the mall or the airport or wherever you are because they know that people are going to smell it and want to eat a cinnamon bun. This is the physiology, some of the physiology underlying that. So the lean person smells the cinnamon bun and he's got this very modest, if at all, insulin response. And it's very easy for him to say, yeah, a cinnamon bun, I'm not that hungry. Let's keep going. Now, the uh, person who suffers from overweight or obesity and is insulin resistant has a much stronger insulin response. And that insulin response makes him hungry. And when, because insulin is signaling the cells to take up carbohydrates and use it for fuel, it actually makes him hungry for carbohydrates. <laughs> so for that person, he's now in the midst of his you know, Ansel Keys starvation experiment from the 1940s. And he's getting hungry and hungry and all he wants to eat is a cinnamon bun. So he goes into the store and eats a cinnamon bun, buys it, walks out of the store. He's eating the cinnamon bun and some other lean person is walking by thinking, aha, that's why he's fat. He's got no willpower. Um, it's got nothing to do with willpower. It's purely physiological. And one of my speculations, and I can't prove this, is that lean people cannot understand this phenomenon because it doesn't happen to them. You know, their bodies don't work the way ours do. So it's like the whole concept of willpower is a lean person seeing other people eat and thinking, I don't eat like that, therefore I have better willpower but they can't understand it because we're not them. Our physiology is different. Our body is responding differently. How that response manifests itself as hunger is different. And unfortunately, it all comes down to this. If you can minimize insulin secretion, which you do by not eating carbs and replacing the calories with mostly fat, then you can slowly fix all this and then your body will work kind of like a lean person. And a year from now, hopefully, if that same two people walk through the shopping mall and one of them you know, was always lean and the other one is newly lean, but now eating a ketogenic diet, the cinnamon bun won't affect him the same way.
No, that's such an important. Although bacon and butter might. <laughs> of course, of course. No, that's such a great point. I hadn't really considered that. And it has taken for me personally, and I'm sure you yourself, a very strict, you know, abstinence from carbohydrate to be able to get to that spot, to be able to walk through a mall and not even think about Cinnabon. But that's what it takes. I, I can't have carbohydrates. I can't have sweets. I just, I have to avoid them completely or, or extremely sparingly and be able to pay the price because, there will be that price. And I love that your book is very scientific, but you also did show a few pictures of different plates that were isocaloric, so same calorie versions, but different foods. And you can you can just look at those foods and see like, okay, if I eat this, I'm gonna be starving in two hours. If I eat this, you know, eggs, bacon, whatever you have on there, I'm, I'm not really gonna be thinking about food at all. And those two things are exactly the same amount of calories. I think most people could understand that. Oh, I, I think so too. Although nobody commented, you're the first person to ever comment on that chapter, which I thought was very interesting. So all you do, all I did is I created plates of breakfast plates with a typical American breakfast, cereal, orange juice, toast, and a keto breakfast. And it's, you know, in effect, which eggs, bacon, avocado, same calories. And did the same thing with the lunch, although lunch I went to McDonald's just to make a point. I got, you know, McDonald's hamburger with a bun and small French fries and a soda. And the keto version was, you know, I think I took the hamburgers off the bun and no fries, no soda. And I, but it, it ended up the same amount of calories. I forget what the starch was. And dinner was, you know, uh, chicken with mashed potatoes and broccoli for the American chicken, the, the, the typical standard American dinner. And the keto version was instead of a chicken breast, we had chicken thighs and, you know, bro more broccoli with butter or olive oil on. And you can match the calories exactly. And the meals don't look all that different. And in fact, the keto version of the lunch and dinner, most dietitians they don't like People eating animal products, but most dietitians would have said this is fine. The only sticking point would have been breakfast, because as soon as you get to eggs and bacon, they start thinking you're killing yourself. But the point is the carb that one of them is a weight loss diet. If nothing else, that three keto plates are a weight loss diet, and the three standard American diet plates are not. I think the total calories between the three meals was around 2,500. Yeah, that sounds right. You know, and yet the conventional wisdom is one way or the other. It's always all about calories. And yet here you all you had to do was go through that exercise and you've got a, a weight loss diet and a weight maintenance diet of exactly the same calories. Yeah. Um, the idea of we should talk about the addiction idea for a second and not being able to eat carbs. So, again, the phrase I use in the book, um, which I borrowed from. What used to be and may still be the most famous book ever written about food it was called The Physiology of Taste. It was written by a French lawyer turned gourmand called uh, Jean-Antoine Briat Savarin. It was published in 1825, the year he died, and stayed in print, has been in print ever after, never went out of print. And Briat Savarin said, look, he said he struggled with his weight. And, and over the course of the 20 years he was collecting research for this book, he had interviews like 500 overweight and obese people. And he said, they all, you know, they all tell you, ask them what their favorite food is. It's carbs. It's potatoes or bread or potatoes or bread or, you know, this was before sugar consumption. 
sugar was inexpensive, so he didn't talk that much about sugar because in the early 19th century, it was still kind of a luxury. Um, although he said, so his conclusion is that people get, it's the, he called it the farinaceous elements of the diet. Farinaceous meant starchy. So the carbohydrates in the diet that cause obesity, he said sugar makes everything worse. And the only solution is more or less rigid abstinence to those foods, not eating less, not exercising, more or less rigid abstinence to the carbohydrates in the diet. And some of us could get by with less abstinence. And some of us, basically, if we want to maintain a healthy way, we just can't eat these foods. You know, the same way if you're, I use the example of I had a cat, corn allergy if I was young. If I didn't want to have gastrointestinal problems, I couldn't eat corn. It was... And as I got older, if I don't want to be suffer from overweight or obesity, I can't eat carbs in general. I just can't do it. Um, and if I do, not only will I start gaining weight, but I'll start craving them. There's a, definitely a slippery slope to all this. So part of the problem of therapy. And this book, The Case of Keto, was originally called How to Think About How to Eat, because I just wanted to get people to understand if you struggle with your weight, this is the way I think you have to think about it. Um, you know, some of us just can't eat these foods. And the good thing is that when you stop eating them, there's a whole world of foods that you can eat that are delicious, which was the exact same point that Briat Savaram made in 1825. He was perfectly happy not eating bread or potatoes because he could live on all these other wonderful foods, particularly being French, where they had no compulsions against pouring butter sauces on everything. We are now going to go to episode 121 with Dave Champion. He is the author of the book, Body Science, the new 21st century understanding of how your physiology really works, leave the myths and lies behind, get healthier than you or your doctor ever imagined, and avoid chronic disease. Kind of a long title on his book, but he does an amazing job in this book. I can't recommend this book highly enough. He, he goes in detail of what he calls ketosis, which is a state of ketosis, which he argues is our natural human state, and compares that with something that he calls glucosis, which was a term that I had not really heard. I guess it had been used in, in literature in the past, but he really brings it out. And in this book, he really talks about how these two systems are supposed to run. And he's going to talk about how the glucosis system, as he terms it, is our emergency backup energy system. It's not the one that we are supposed to be primarily running on. And in our modern societies with all the processed foods, and all the carbohydrates we have, this emergency system is being used way, way too much. So we're going to play you this clip now. I, I said earlier that the long-standing false establishment narrative is that glucose is the way that the body is, is to create, that the cells are to create energy. It is the proper, right, and normal way, and everything else is some sort of fluke. That, that is completely 180 degrees opposed to reality. The cells oxidizing glucose is part of that emergency system to reduce the amount of blood glucose, um, to bring down the blood glucose level. Yeah, it's part of that system. The liver cannot handle it all, so insulin signals the cells to open up and take in the glucose to get it out of the blood. And of course, the, the, the research narrative is, well, like, yeah, we want the glucose in the cells. No, it's an emergency mechanism. There is no benefit to running in the emergency mode 24-7 your entire life. 
Mm. It actually it actually breaks down the body's systems. Conversely, the lymphatic lipid system, it uses only, it delivers only fatty acids. So here's the deal. We've got the one hemisphere, glucosis, where the cells burn glucose. We've got the other hemisphere, ketosis, burning primarily fatty acids into a lesser extent, ketones. Gl- burning glucose is like putting diesel in a Maserati engine. Okay. And burning fatty acids is like putting high octane fuel in your Maserati engine. And somehow the establishment has gotten this completely backwards. And they want to claim that pumping diesel into the gas tank of your Maserati, oh, hell yeah, that's totally normal. Let's do a whole bunch more of that. Mm. It's, it's so apparent, you, you've read Body Science, so you get it, but it's so apparent that that's nonsense. It is literally mind-boggling that the, a gigantic percentage of the <clears throat> civilized world actually believes that nonsense. Wow. That's so crazy. Okay, so let's let's just quickly recap. So in the lymphatic lipid system, this is the system that is designed to run efficiently pretty much all of the time. So if I am eating primarily animal flesh, I'm consuming proteins and fats, preferring the fats for energy. Those come into my body. They do not go directly into the bloodstream. They go through the lymphatic system, through into a chylomicron, um, and they get distributed for energy, which is to be burned, not to be stored. Is that correct? Absolutely. Not one single bit of the fatty acids that are delivered through the lymphatic lipid system are stored. None. Zero. Okay. Then I am out in the world. Um, occasionally I will come across some fruit, maybe some honey, something that is carbohydrate based. That's going to be pretty rare because I'm competing with other animals, which I love that you made that point in the book. Um, you know, birds probably are going to access those fruits way, you know, way better than I'm going to be able to. Those foods are pretty much seasonal unless you live in very specific parts of the world. You're probably not going to see them all the time. And they're very different from the fruits and whatever you know carbohydrate foods we think of today. They were vastly different back then. Is that, are we, are we good so far? Absolutely. A thing, fruits and vegetables that we walk into the grocery store and look at today and readily identify we would have no idea what the hell we were looking at 25,000 years. <laughs> Softball sized apples like you can buy in, in, you know, May it's, it's absurd. And most people never stop to consider it because that's their normal. That's what they've grown up with. Yeah. There's been a lot of hybrid breeding that has made things much more desirable from a consumer perspective over the last hundred years or so. Gotcha. Okay. So ancient man, again, he's, he's living mostly in ketosis, eating lots of proteins and fats, probably doesn't need to eat very frequently because he is running on those ketones, using them for fuel, not storing them. Occasionally he has something maybe that's a little sweeter, carbohydrate based. He'll eat that hepatic livers or excuse me, hepatic, um, lipid system kicks on deals with this rare occasion you know, that doesn't happen very often and sorts out the problem as an emergency mechanism. And we can go back to living primarily in ketosis, pretty healthy and happy and, and continue down that path. And we've done that for tens and hundreds of thousands of years. So we're, is that correct so far? Yes. I do want to highlight one point where you talk about, okay, so he stumbles across some stuff that's sugary or high carb and the hepatic lipid system kicks in to resolve that. And then he 
he never does leave ketosis, by the way, when that happens, because mm -hmm. it, it's such it's such a momentary event um, that it doesn't change his physiology. His cells still only want fatty acids. It, it takes some period of days in order to flip back. OK, but the important point I want to make here is that that incident. He stumbles across, we'll use honey, because since you mentioned that, although that tends to be more of a fructose issue, but nevertheless, we'll use that as an example. And so his, his uh, blood glucose goes up, the hepatic lipid system get, kicks in and resolves that. That did zero damage to his body. Mm. Now, the reason I bring that up is the, what the standard American diet does and what vast majority of Americans and probably people in the Western world generally do is they require that emergency hepatic lipid system. They require that to run every single day, multiple times a day. It is the norm, this emergency system that, that man's genetic coding intended to have used once in a blue moon. They make it run constantly for their entire lives. And then the body gets worn down by that. And finally, by the time you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s, on comes the chronic disease. And the, that really is a manifestation that the body simply cannot, cannot cope with the ongoing abuse any longer. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> you mentioned a few points in time that are very important to understand how we got to where we are today. Um, and I'd like to get into that. We have talked to a few paleoarchaeologists like uh, Dr. Bill Schindler, Dr. Mickey Bendor. They talk about how our brains are now smaller than they used to be. We used to be taller. We used to have really strong bones, wide teeth, essentially like very, very healthy as human beings living in that particular state. But there were a few really, really important events that happened. One about 12, maybe 15,000 years ago. Can you talk about what happened that started us down this path of, of running that emergency system all the time? Yes, it is called the first agricultural revolution. And essentially that we can simplify that and say humans learn how to cultivate, how to farm. And virtually anything that grows out of the ground, a plant is carbohydrates. So about 12,000 years ago, the trajectory of what we ate began to change. As you can imagine, if I say it started 11,000 years ago, I'm sorry, 12,000 years ago, 11,000 years ago, the change was very minor. And with, with time and learning more how to cultivate, how to farm, the percentage of carbohydrates in the human diet gradually increased. Now, we get into about the 19th century, and this is where things change dramatically. That is the second agricultural revolution. And this was, I mean, I get that the British thought that they were doing a great thing when they learned how to exponentially increase crop yields. They didn't understand what they were really doing, what the consequence was. Nobody understood back then because we didn't have the science. <clears throat> and it had happened so gradually that the change in human physiology was unnoticed generation to generation. And then, of course, then we have the beginning of the 20th century and what I have dubbed the uh, third in, uh, uh, the third revolution of 
bringing carbohydrates to the table. That that is where science started taking things that were grown, taking them into a laboratory, creating things never before known to humankind and saying, look, look what we did. We processed this and now it's even better than it ever was. And perhaps for the taste buds, that might be true, but physiologically, it took the damage to an a stratospherically new level, which is why if we go back before the 20th century, say to the late 1800s, heart attacks were virtually unknown. And doctors had to go to, had to travel many, many, many states away, which was arduous back then, right? They had to travel just to take a class about this weird thing called diabetes. Because most doctors had never had never met anyone with diabetes, no less had a patient who was diabetic. So they had to travel to go to these classes to completely, it wasn't even taught in medical school. They had to go to these classes because that was the only way to get the information. That tells you how incredibly rare, if there was no heart attack, there almost no heart attacks, heart disease was incredibly rare. Diabetes was virtually unknown. And so then we transit into the 20th century with this industrial produced food where they take what grows out of the ground and then they, they process it. Um, and all of a sudden, this eventually, by the time we get to the 1940s and 50s, we have this epidemic that Ansel Keys was supposed to address. So you see the timeline all the way from 12,000 years ago to Ansel Keys and his corrupt um, research resulting in America adopting the completely wrong, inaccurate dynamic. <laughs> uh, you mentioned processed foods. I'm thinking of three in particular that stand out as probably the most damaging. The first you mentioned, which is grains. When we increased our yields of grains, that was inherently a very bad thing. Um, second yes. thing I would think of would be the refinement of table sugar. Um, I, mm -hmm. Did we, did we, I, I, we learned how to get it from beets. Is that correct? What's that? Uh, did we we learned how to get sugar from sugar beets? Is that is that where we started to get more um, sugar in our diet? We learned how to refine it and increase the yields. Sugar beets and sugar cane. Okay. Um, for instance, for instance, Alexander Hamilton was born on a small Caribbean island where they had slaves producing sugar cane. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. So those are the two. The third I'm thinking of right around, um, you know, the beginning of the 20th century would be vegetable oils. Uh, Crisco in 1911, first hydrogenated fat that came from cottonseed. Um, would that be the third highest offender in your opinion? Yes. Uh, vegetable oil has been the scourge of modern, we'll say post-World War II, just to give it a finite time frame. Um, it has been the scourge of public health and not, not so much the obesity. That's, that's more the other starchy, grainy um, processed foods. It has been the scourge of the public's health in terms of cancer. Science has known since the 1970s that veg a, a diet heavy in vegetable oil produces a 300% increased risk for colorectal cancer and a 200% uh, increased risk 
of cancer, all, all cancers across the board. And yet, knowing that as early as the 1970s, in the 1980s, the United States government said, ah, oh, Ansel Keys says saturated fat will give you heart disease. So eat this, we all know this phrase, right? Healthy fats. <laughs> now, also, I, I think an important thing for people to realize is the term vegetable oil is one of the biggest scams in modern consumer history. Thank you. With the exception, perhaps, of things like avocado oil um, or olive oil, that's not vegetable oil at all. When you walk down the, the aisle at Walmart, I actually did a video about this one time where I filmed this, like, I don't know what it was, like 25 feet of a seven high foot rack filled with stuff saying vegetable oil on the, on the label. Okay. <laughs> and not, not a drop of it was, is from vegetables. It's, it, it is oil uh, uh, industrially removed from nuts and seeds and grains. <laughs> It's really such an interesting way of looking at things. I really love Dave's perspective. And in the book, he really hammers home the point that if we don't continue feeding ourselves with tons and tons of processed foods and carbohydrates, the, the medical system, the food system, the pharmaceutical system would lose literally trillions and trillions of dollars. They need to keep this lie going and they need, need to keep us on that system of glucosis, of, of running on carbohydrate all the time so that they can keep their profit margins high. It's really sad um, and, and we so appreciate him and his work. We are now going to go back to Amy Berger, but this was back in episode 47, one of our very first ones, and we're going to let her do what she does best, which is clarify confusion around carbohydrates. Yeah, this uh, the book that I, I co-wrote with Dr. Eric Westman, who actually trained directly with Dr. Atkins um, back in the day, uh, We it, it's called End Your Carb Confusion, and it it is the book that I would want if I was new. This is the simplest, most down-to-earth, plain English guide as to why to do low-carb, how to do it, who should do it. I mean, frankly, not everybody needs a low-carb diet, but, um, and it's it's funny, you were saying, you know, talking about all the meal prep and all this advanced stuff and the tracking, and our book is like the opposite of that. You know, we we make it very clear that you can do this on any budget, you can, if you want to buy all grass-fed, pasture-raised meats, that's great. If you can't afford it, if all you can afford is that tube of ground beef that they sell at the discount store, that's great too. And um, you could even, you could even, if you don't cook at all, you can actually be perfectly successful, you know, dining out or getting takeout or even fast food for every meal as long as you know what to order. And so, in terms of getting started, the the number one most important thing, and the thing that actually makes this way of eating effective, the thing that, that makes all of these fundamental primary changes inside you is keeping your carbohydrate intake really low. Everything else is secondary. People worry about, should I have MCT oil? Should I fast? Should I do this? Should I do that? What about putting butter in my coffee? All of that is meaningless unless you're doing the single most important thing that actually makes this way of eating work, and that's just keeping your carb intake really low. Is that why you called the book End Your Carbohydrate Confusion rather than calling it just keto something? I've heard you answer this question before, and I think it's really interesting. 
Yeah, we we purposely kept the word keto out of the title because our book is not just a keto book. Our book has three different phases of carbohydrate intake because not everybody needs a strict keto diet. And we actually have a checklist that walks, depending on your answers to the questions, it points you to a level of carbohydrate intake that's appropriate for you. And um, of course, you know, many, many millions of people really do, you know, will do best at the ketogenic level, at least to start. But what we try to do throughout the book is, is end the confusion. You know, why, why do so many people have such problems when they eat too much carbohydrate? Why do other people not? Why do we all have friends and family members that can eat tons of fruit and pasta and bread and they're fine and we can't? Um, and and we, we, we talk about why to keep these things to a minimum in your diet. You know, what happens in your body when you eat too many of these things and what happens when you start cutting them out of your diet? And, um, you know, besides, besides clearing up that confusion, you know, why can some people eat more carbs and others can't? I, the main goal of the book is to clear up confusion about how to do this way of eating and how to basically make it your make it your life make it not 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 your obsessive but make it the way you eat for life make it it's it's not a diet it's not a thing you go on for six months and you lose weight and you go back it's how do you do this for the long term and that's why we besides just the keto portion there's these other levels of higher carb intake where you, you might be in a situation where your health is so severely compromised or, or you're looking to lose so much weight that the strictest approach is best for you. You know, maybe you're looking to lose a hundred pounds or more, or you have diabetes or something. And so being really strict is probably best, but what happens when you get closer and closer and reach your goal? Okay. You've lost the weight, all the medical problems you had are gone. You're off the medication. Now what? Do you need to keep eating super strict keto for the rest of your life? Or might you have room to have a sweet potato or to go to your favorite Mexican place and have the rice and beans? And so we we try to kind of answer all those questions and we try to do it in a way that is entirely scientifically sound, but it's plain English. It's It's readable. You don't need a PhD to understand it. And, um, yeah. Thank you so very much for listening to this special episode taken from the Boundless Body Radio premium podcast. If you haven't already, please follow our show on Apple Podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and review on that platform as it is the best way to continue to get our message out to new people all over the world. And as we said in the introduction, feel free to book a 30-minute complimentary session with us on our website at myboundlessbody.com so we can discuss your health and fitness goals and help you come up with a plan. Thank you so very much, as always, for listening to Boundless Body Radio.